generally speaking, as the retreat unfolds, there's a bit of a pattern. I just realized it right now. A bit of a pattern in terms of what kind of talks are given. Um, We're right in the heart of the retreat right now. Uh, So we've been here for a few days. And um, so I decided to talk about uh, the Buddhist teachings on not-self, which uh, for some of us it can be quite challenging. One thing is that's important when we talk about different concepts or different teachings, uh, it's very helpful to reflect on the Buddhist teaching around um, the fact that it, it's not about believing. You know, it's not about buying something that you don't understand. Um, but it's, it's much more of an encouragement uh, to look at your own experience, to look directly at your own experience, and see if the teachings resonate with one's own experience. Uh, and then faith arises out of that. You know, faith and conviction, dedication arises out of seeing that. And over the years, having practiced quite a bit, it continues to inspire me, I guess, to point to the fact that just how profound and deep the Buddhist teachings are and and how much they resonate for me, uh, what my own exploration and investigation has been. Um, there, There doesn't seem to be a false note in the essential Buddhist teachings. Uh, But it's really up to us to take a look for ourselves. And so when we take up this teaching of not-self, what I'd like to do tonight is is to look at it kind of in a practical framework, maybe hopefully demystify a little bit of that teaching. Um, If you've been kind of frightened by that notion or puzzled, not too surprising. Uh, it's a challenging uh, concept. It's a challenging teaching, thinking that there's not self. And one thing I wanted to begin with was by pointing to the fact um, to what um, not self is not. Okay, what not self is not. It doesn't mean that there are no boundaries. You know that we don't have boundaries between each other. You know, that just everything kind of blends together and everything's okay or nothing's okay. I mean, it's, or that we're all the same. Um, doesn't mean, not self doesn't mean that eventually in practice you, you're going to just disappear and never come back. Uh, it also doesn't mean, um, sometimes folks interpret not self um, as, as, as this development or gradual development of indifference indifference to one's needs or indifference to one's interests or indifference to one's relationships or indifference towards one's aspirations, whether it's worldly aspirations, um, you know, jobs, careers, relationships, or whether it's spiritual aspirations. It doesn't mean not taking care of oneself. And language is tricky. Uh, doesn't mean it has nothing to do with not taking care of oneself. In fact, wisdom is very much taking care of oneself best you can. Also, taking care of others is a very compassionate response. 
I think, a very spontaneous and natural response coming from this process of unburdening oneself of this concept of self. Doesn't mean not taking responsibility for one's actions, and it doesn't mean that we don't have will, that we can't direct our energies in a certain direction. But what it does mean is something quite simple. What it means is that there's no solid, un- there's no solid, unchanging entity that exists outside of nature. You know, that all of us here in this room, every human being, uh, is included in nature. You know, we're not separate. We can just take a look at this retreat, the way it's unfolded the conditions that we've encountered along the way, whether it's in the body or the mind or the environment, the temperature, the sounds, the thoughts, the ideas, the emotions. You can see that they're changing. You know, taking a look outside. Every day is different. Changes from one moment to the next. And all of us really don't have much of a problem Recognizing when we look out at a forest, watch the birds, watch the seasons come and go. Most of us would not have a problem recognizing the changing nature of that nature. We have a very difficult time imagining or seeing that we, too, are changing from one moment to the next. That there's nothing permanent, there's nothing solid that we can hook into and call, that's who I am. This, at least according to the Buddha in the framework of not-self, that self is a construction. It's a construction in the mind. Oftentimes this idea of having a self can provide a lot of security for us, a lot of comfort, the sense that we're directing the show, that we're in charge. But in actuality, if we begin to take a look at our experience, clinging to a particular notion of self creates an enormous amount of fear in the mind. We create this very, very small, small and vulnerable universe that we call a self. And then we spend a lot of time, a lot of energy. We invest a lot in protecting it protecting and defending it. And so often we get consumed in that process of grasping on, clinging on to, getting absorbed in self-interest. And when we get caught up in self-interest, we're just focusing on our own needs in the exclusion of others. There's nothing wrong with taking care of one's needs, but when it excludes, it doesn't take into the context, it doesn't doesn't include the larger community that we're living in. We can see the problems that it creates. I mean, just taking a look at this recent economic crash, 
And we can see that the blindness of self-interest, when it doesn't take into account the needs of others. It's a function of greed. And what it does is, it knocks us out of harmony with nature. And this, this sense that there's a solid self creates all sorts of problems for us. It knocks us out. We feel separate from nature. And we also feel separate from each other. When we create a self, we automatically create another. And that throws us out of balance. It alienates us. We feel so alone and isolated in that process, rather than recognizing, once again, our interconnection, the wisdom piece, the bigger picture. But of course, we're individuals. We're all following our own path. There's no denying that. But we're also part of a larger community. We're all part of nature. We're not separate. We're part of this planet, part of this universe. One significant way, I think very practical terms that we create and shape, that we create and shape this construct of self is through uh, comparison and evaluating, comparing ourselves to others. This is such an intense habit, particularly in the West. You know, we live in an incredible, incredible competitive culture, very demanding, constantly being evaluated, constantly being judged, living with a lot of fear of failure, grasping onto success, feeling like that's actually going to bring some kind of lasting happiness. And the older I get, the more I read and the more I look around me, I see how slippery success and failure is. One moment, someone's at the top, you know, top of their game, top of the world, you know, just have everything at their disposal. And the next minute, there's a huge fall. And sometimes that fall is very useful for those folks. Oftentimes when one interviews those folks that have had that experience of rise and fall, oftentimes what happens is there's a deepening process. There's an unburdening of that selfish energy that was consuming before, or that unconsciousness, that lack of sensitivity to others. And there's a deepening and a, a valuing our relationship and a valuing of simplicity and connection. So could we call that a failure? I don't think so. I don't think so. So success and failure, it's such a relative and slippery term, yet so often we view ourselves through that lens. And all of us do it. It's such a habit. Oftentimes, this, this habit of comparing ourselves, the Buddha described it as conceit. 
And conceit is this comparing mind that compares oneself to someone else in a framework of either better than, so feeling better than someone. That's the common concept of conceit in our culture. It's not very good to think of yourself as better than someone else. But conceit also includes being worse than or lesser than. And that's actually another form of conceit or pride in the Buddhist teaching. And it even goes as far as comparing yourself as equal. Because once again, we're constructing a self in relationship. Our idea of, of who we are is being formed through comparing. And comparing and how we compare ourselves to others depends so much on our conditioning. And it limits us. If we define ourselves in relationship to others, it puts us on this wheel of craving. And again, this is very strong in this culture, a craving for approval. A craving for approval or, or fear of disapproval or fear of blame or fear of conflict. And so we can see this suffering that comes out of defining ourselves, building this self based on that habit of mind that's been drilled into us in terms of comparing ourselves to others. Oftentimes in the Dharma world, I would say, it's much more common to compare yourself as worse than. There's not that many people, I think, that generally think they're a lot better than the person next to you. And Look at your own mind and ask yourself, do you think you're a much better meditator than the person that's been sitting <laughs> next to you? Most people, when they at least they might be ashamed of it, actually, but when they report in the interviews, it's always that everybody else is doing fine. Uh, and uh, it's not true. <laughs> Sometimes they're doing better, but other times they're really struggling. You can't tell. And the thing about comparison is so unreliable. So unreliable. When we compare ourselves to others, most of the time we have absolutely no clue what's going on for them. Absolutely no clue. Our imaginations run wild. It's so unreliable. And it generates so much insecurity, a lack of faith, a confidence in ourselves. So how did the Buddha arrive at this insight or realization of not-self? As far as I know, it was pretty original teaching. I'm not saying that he was the first one to realize that. Um, but he certainly laid it out in a very clear way, his insight or his experience of not-self. So the Buddha did very much what we're doing here, uh, maybe in a slightly more dedicated and focused way. Um, I believe that. But what he discovered through a sustained and deep attention and investigation, a relentless taking a look at his own experience, not turning away, not being distracted. What the Buddha discovered was that all conditioned phenomena, 
all phenomena that the Buddha encountered in his awareness practice. All these conditioned phenomena, body, the mind, sounds, sensations, thoughts, feelings, emotions, they were all changing. They were all in a process of change. All in a process of change. So that all of it was nature. Anger, sadness, fear, desire, bliss, peace. All of it was included in nature. There was nothing that was static, stable, not changing. And for the Buddha, that wasn't a belief. It came out of his own direct observation from moment to moment in a sustained way. But not only did the Buddha have that insight, what sense to look at that, discover that, he also had the brilliance and the intelligence and the power of mind to describe uh, in very clear terms what, what, what do we construct the self out of? You know, how do we construct the self? What do, we, what do we misperceive as the self? And he grouped it into what we call the five aggregates of clinging or khandhas. And these are aggregates, aspects of our experience, uh, that are continually changing, yet there's a strong tendency to identify with them, to claim them as me or mine, to take them as self out of a lack of awareness. The first is material form. The second is feelings. The third aggregate is perception. The fourth is mental formations. The fifth is consciousness. The first, material form. How do we cling to material form? How do we identify with material form? What, in practical daily life, how do we construct a self through material form? First area to look at is one's relationship to one's possessions. Quite often, there's a tremendous amount of identification with the things that we own. No big surprise. Things like, I always have to start with my car. <laughs> yeah. There are very few people who don't at least identify with their car a little bit. <laughs> at least a lot of the folks I hang out with anyways. Um, it's interesting. You buy a car, you never own it practically because you're paying it off the whole time. Uh, but yet, it's my car. It's my space. Uh, you know, somebody dings your car. Really upsetting. Like the worst thing that could happen. And somebody <laughs> dings your car. How come? <laughs> How come it's so upsetting? Well, it's so upsetting because we identify with that car. It feels like somebody's doing it to us. Fascinating. Feels like somebody's doing it to us. Our clothing, strong identifying identification with um, what we wear. How many of you came to this retreat without any self-consciousness about the clothes that you were choosing? You were just interested in wearing comfortable clothing with no 
interest at all of how you would be per perceived. Yeah, there's a few. I know there's a few. And I give you credit. <laughs> I really do. I give you credit. No, because to me, that's an admirable quality, uh, one that's lacking in the society. Um, so we do take a lot of our, uh, we do put a lot of ourselves. We invest a lot of self in our clothing and our property and homes. You know, deep, that's a deep one for a lot of us. And we can see sometimes uh, you know, the suffering that's going on now. Uh, it's a very real suffering because we're talking about shelter and well-being and stability, all things that all human beings need. And there's also, sometimes, there's an overlay. Sometimes there's an added suffering uh, in terms of how we do relate to our home. We can often see a self, how we construct a self uh, in terms of our home. We often identify with it when people come over. And we want them to like it. You know, there's a lot of self in that. A big aspect of material form, what makes up material form, is the body. And there's a very powerful very deep identification with the body. And of course, the fruit of that, you know, taking, claiming the body as me or mine, the, the very direct fruit, something that we can get in touch with pretty much on a daily basis, if we look close, is that oftentimes there's a fear of aging. Uh, not often when you're young, but as you get older, for, for sure, you just, as one sees the body changing and aging and discovering certain limitations or what, whatever it might be, um, fear arises. Uh, feels like it's happening to us. Very much feels like it's happening to us. And it's certainly the fear of death is linked very much. Uh, at least one aspect of it is linked to uh, our identification with our body. But in everyday life, the identification with the body shows up in just the most crazy, strange, humorous sometimes, not so humorous way. Um, but what we see is that oftentimes our self-worth you know, is tied into body, body image, how we, how we identify with our body, how we take it, is who we are. You know, a couple months ago, I think it was, maybe it was longer, um, I remember reading an article in the Times. A couple of you have heard this story before. Be patient read this article in the New York Times about, um, sort of it was about cosmetic surgery and that kind of thing. And there was this article about uh, people going to salons and you know, how much extra, how much of people's income, a lot of middle class obviously or upper, are spending on, on cosmetic surgery and hair and all that, all that kind of stuff. And the article focused on the fact that it filters down from sort of generation to generation. And it's been starting earlier and earlier in terms of passing down this whole notion of one's self-worth being tied into one's appearance. And the example that this article used was that they were talking about the fact that these young girls, ages like from starting at eight, eight to 10, we're going to these places for waxing. Okay, waxing. Now, I'm not positive what waxing is. <laughs> no. 
And I think I never want to find out, <laughs> at least through direct experience. But it does strike me that prepubescent girls would go, their mothers or fathers would take them for waxing. It seemed insane, absolutely insane. And they also talked about spending $200 on a little girl's haircut. I mean, obviously, we talk about folks with some money. But folks look at that, you know, folks maybe that don't have money and kind of wish they could do it. You know, I mean, it's, it becomes a model for how we bring up kids. Not for everybody, obviously. We, we question that, hopefully. But it's out there. Maybe in a lot more subtle ways, but it's out there. Physical parents, self-worth. Very difficult to let go of that conditioning. And that's the drawback to identifying with the body, certainly one. It shows up in more subtle ways when you're practicing. And, and one of the most interesting aspects of practice is to take a look at places that we do identify, that we do claim as me and mine. And I had experience around this sort of identification with the body. Mm -hmm sometime last year. Last couple of years, I've joined the gym, local gym in my town, my hometown. And uh, I've been pr pretty good at going on a regular basis. You know, I'm, at, I'm at that age where it's probably a good idea to uh, be going to the gym, taking care of my body. Uh, so as time goes on, I'm working out, and three, four, five, six months goes by, and, and I'm noticing that my body's feeling stronger, and, it's getting in better shape. And, and we all know that at these gyms, even this one, which I go to, is very laid back. It's like not a big dating scene or, or you know anything's going on. You just go there, work out, and you go. Uh, but there are always mirrors, usually, uh, in front of the machines. And I, the function of the machine, the mirrors, of course, is maybe to reinforce that notion of self. Uh, but hopefully, it's like you're progressing, you know, so you get to look at it. Uh, get more inspired and <laughs> keep going. Uh, so I remember one day I was working on this machine and I was oh, yeah, these arms are getting, you know, pretty big, you know? <laughs> and, uh, you know, feeling, feeling pretty good. All this effort's paying off. Uh, you don't hear any identification in that, do you? <laughs> I didn't think so. So feeling pretty good about myself, and then I'm kind of on this machine, you know. And mostly I'm, I'm like running around like a, you know, one of those uh, gerbils that Ryan mentioned on the, on the elliptical machine. Uh, but I do work a little bit with the machines. Um, and so I'm on one of these sitting machines, I'm looking out and, you know, kind of watching my body a little bit. Um, and this guy walks by. And his wrists were bigger than my legs. <laughs> Okay. Literally bigger than my legs. <laughs> the guy was huge. And then there's a woman that walks by. <laughs> now, her arms were probably bigger than my legs, <laughs> but not her wrists. She was a lot stronger than I was. And, you know, immediately I go from inflation to slight deflation <laughs> right on the spot. And what I saw out of that, I mean, I, I had a good laugh, actually, about it. 
Uh, what I saw about that is you know, how identification gets formed. I was comparing my body to the past. You know, the comparing mind is what's creating that self. Comparing my body now after six months, proud that it's changing or that I'm keeping going. Comparing my body to someone else's. And then it's worse than, although I really don't want that kind of body. Vegetarians really can't get those kind of bodies, <laughs> nor do I have that interest. Um, but the fact was, you know, there's that comparing energy, and we do it a lot. And oftentimes, it's extremely unconscious. And when we wake up to it, we can see the dukkha. We can see the suffering in it. Sometimes you might even notice that here, doing yoga, you know, like when you're doing your stretching, do you check out your neighbor and notice how flexible they are? You know, maybe you're feeling bad that we're not as flexible as we could be or, quote, should be. And when, we, when we feel that way, there's a lot of self in it. We're investing our happiness. We're investing the peace of our, a peace of mind in that very conditioned, changeable, unpredictable process of the body. And it's it leaves us very vulnerable to a lot of emotional pain. It's very limiting. And it's not that one doesn't take care of one's body. And that, that that insight that we're not our bodies or that our bodies are continually changing, that doesn't devalue the body. See, that's the myth of not self. That's what a lot of folks are afraid of. But that's not, we don't devalue the body. In fact, it's almost the opposite. We can appreciate our bodies. They're such incredible vehicles. They're impermanent, yes, but they're amazing systems. So we take care of them the best we can, hopefully. It's a good idea. It's wise. But not identifying with the body, taking it as me or mine, is also very wise. Because when it changes, we don't have to suffer. We can have greater equanimity around that. Because we realize it's possible to experience some unconditioned peace, something that isn't dependent on the particular condition the body's in. And that is truly possible. The second kanda, the second aggregate is feelings. And feelings in the Buddhist framework are pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. Uh, each sense door we experience seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, thinking. Six sense doors. Those experiences that come through those sense doors, they have a physical, uh, I mean, they have a uh, pleasant or unpleasant or neutral texture or tone to them. So thoughts can have a, a physical texture or, or uh, I mean, a, a pleasant texture or an unpleasant texture or neutral. Same with other body sensations and smells and tastes. Um, again, how do we identify with pleasure and pain? In other words, we know that pleasure and pain is impermanent. We've seen that in this retreat. Eating's over, moving on to dishes. Unpleasant. Getting done dishes, brushing the teeth, maybe pleasant. Going for a walk, it's too hot, the insects are out, unpleasant. Breeze picks up, it's a little cooler and drier, pleasant. Sensations come and go. But oftentimes we make the mistake. Again, particularly in this culture which places pleasure as a virtue. Doesn't recognize that pleasure is just simply pleasure. It can be enjoyed, but it's not a virtue. Pain is something that's flawed, something's wrong. 
There's a value judgment. It's bad to be avoided at all costs when the reality is life is full of pleasure and pain. Good example of this is when we look at our minds and we look at different states of mind as meditators. When we're experiencing a very pleasant state of mind, let's say peace or some joy, that of course is a pleasant mental state. It's very easy to cling on to that, grasp on to that, identify with it. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm a pretty good meditator after all. Even after four days of suffering, I've arrived. And, you know, it's great. And then the next sitting, maybe it's sleepy or dull or restless or the mind is anxious or worried or the mind starts trying to get that experience back. And all of a sudden we're in a very unpleasant state of mind and immediately we identify with that and claim it as me or mine and we see I am not such a good meditator after all. And it's like disappointment or doubt. So oftentimes we value pleasure and pain, not seeing the fact that the nature of pleasure and pain is that it comes and goes. Pleasant states of mind arise. It doesn't mean that there's something just grand that's going to last forever. We can enjoy it, experience it, understand the nature. That's what we should do. Unpleasant sensations do not mean that there's something wrong. It needs to be looked at, examined, seen into its nature, wisely responded to. Don't have to claim it as me or mine. Looking at perception, and that's a very significant one. Uh, perception and re- perception as, as recognition. So often we create an idea about ourselves and about others based on our perception. And too often we trust our perception. You know, too often we trust our perception. We take our perception as absolute truth quite often. Some of us have a little bit of the opposite, but mostly I would say that's a strong tendency of mind. Sometimes we do question our perceptions, but oftentimes it might be in the framework of self-doubt rather than investigation. When we begin to take apart uh, or unravel perception, we begin to see that the labels, the biases, all of those things are conditioned by our past. All of those are conditioned by our accumulation of past experience. And so often we place value judgments based on those perceptions. We take a look at somebody and oftentimes we immediately assess or evaluate them or label them this way or that way. And it's very solid. And it's a source of tremendous suffering in the world in general, as we can see that when we stereotype or we have our cultural biases, our sort of ethnocentric viewpoints, um, all based on perception, cultural perceptions, how much trouble it creates. On a personal level, it limits the possibility when we perceive ourselves in a certain way, when we're carrying around a certain image of ourselves, it gets in the way. We keep tripping up on it. It's like building a wall, an unnecessary wall around us. We don't need to hold on or grasp onto some fixed self-image. Buddha was really clear about this, that uh, for most of us, we've barely begun to tap into our potential as human beings. You know, meditation is about that. It's about discovering new aspects you know, of who you are, liberating a lot of energies that are trapped 
liberating the mind that's limited by its grasping onto perceptions or its identification in fear that comes with clinging to certain labels of biases. And so if we bring this silent attention, this is very subtle sometimes, but one can see it when the mind gets quiet, is that we have an experience and we immediately jump you know, with some perception. And often that perception has some value judgment associated with it. Around ourself, oftentimes, we'll, carry the, we'll have some perception of some fixed idea about ourselves, some self-image, like, I am a good person, common ones, I am a bad person, I'm talented, I'm not so talented, I'm smart, I'm not so smart, I'm attractive, I'm not attractive, I am a concentrated yogi, I am not a concentrated yogi. Okay. Those are ideas about ourselves. Sometimes the mind might be concentrated, Sometimes the mind might not be concentrated. Some people may find you attractive, and a lot of people may find you unattractive. <laughs> okay? It's all relative. It's all shifty. You know, it's not absolute. But we identify with it. And so we crave it. We crave reinforcement for it. You know, we fear the opposite. Sometimes we work very, very hard at trying to sustain others' perceptions of us, you know, presenting ourselves in certain ways so that we get their approval, so they'll see us in a certain light. And so much of that is wasted energy. It just generates a lot of fear. So beginning to see that perception is transitory. It changes all the time. And some, some of you may discover this at the end of the retreat, that your perception of folks that you've been practicing with in silence, there's so much speculation and projection often. And then when, when we break, you know, pe people will surprise you as you get to know them a little bit uh, towards the end, at the end. And it's, so much of it is that we attach, we grasp on to our perceptions, we buy into them, we believe them, we believe them. One quick story, good example of how diluted perceptions can be. And how they can really create a lot of aversion in the mind. There's a yogi at CIMC, and all, most of the CIMC people will know this yogi, and I have permission to tell the story about this yogi from the yogi. Uh, he enjoys the story himself. His name is George, and he comes to a lot of Wednesday nights. And he's a fellow maybe in his mid-60s, and in many ways, he's extremely conventional. He's one of those persons you just don't think might show up in meditation center once, but that would be it. You, know, you just w would never keep coming back. Um, but he does. He's very, very tenacious. And what he's very interested in is practicing in daily life. He doesn't do a lot of retreats. And he doesn't do a lot of intensive practice. And he definitely doesn't sit enough. But he definitely applies the practice to his daily life, trying to be more aware and conscious, especially in relationship with others, because he's identified that as a real significant source of suffering for him, his reactive mind, particularly his aversive, judgmental, impatient mind. So one day he was in line in CVS, and the line was pretty long, and he was kind of at the back of the line. And some fellow, maybe about his age, cut in front of him in the line. 
he just didn't say anything to him, just walked in front of him and stood in line. It was very obvious that he was cutting in line. So of course George, like many of us, might have a reaction to that. And George was like contemplating what to do about this and, and all of that, and kind of feeling a little bit angry and put out, thinking, quite frankly, that this guy was a jerk, who cuts in line, all of that. And so George decided, as a yogi, to start up a conversation with him while he was in line. It turns out this fellow had recently had a stroke, and he was on medication, and his mind was super cloudy, and he was basically just stumbling along in this pharmacy. And to George, it was really a big lesson at how he leaped based on his perception, but what the reality was was so different. So we want to question the actuality, the reality of our perceptions, and not invest so much in them. Hold one's perceptions with a bit more tentativeness, a bit more open-heartedness. The fourth is mental formations. Hmm. I'm also running out of time. Mental formations. Thoughts, mental states, emotions, moods, reactions, views and opinions, the stories we tell ourselves, mental formations, strong, deep tendency to identify with our thoughts, with the content of the mind. And then, of course, to identify and construct a story about that being. In other words, construct a self. And of course, with meditation, one of the insights that we begin to see, particularly when we pay attention in such a sustained way as this, is that our thoughts are coming and going. Many of them are repetitive. There can be a lot of patterns. They arise often, sometimes in, in similar situations, but the thoughts are coming and going, coming and going. We lose touch with that reality. We lose touch with that reality because we are deeply conditioned to buy into our thoughts and to take them as me or mine. I am my mind. I am my thoughts. Maybe it's not, doesn't feel that crude or that basic, but oftentimes that's the energy. That's how we're often relating to our thoughts. So when a thought arises that uh, might be painful or what we might consider ugly, there oftentimes there's a lot of conflict around that. If we encounter some difficult emotion, something quote we call negative emotions, there can be a lot of identification. A good example of that is the uh, energy of fear or anxiety, that oftentimes when fear or anxiety arises, uh, there's there's a lack of insight or a lack of seeing the nature of that particular energy, primarily because we identify with that energy. We take that fear as me or mine, and since we consider it often a negative emotion, that, that fear reflects on us or on who we are. And oftentimes that um, identification process shows up in trying to conceal our fear, you know, either from ourselves, repress it, hide it from others, not be open about insecurities or fears. Uh, there can often be a lot of embarrassment or shame around that energy of fear, particularly if we're talking about fear and 
social relationships, things like that. Um, and so we can see that identifying and taking that energy or fear or anxiety we can see as who we are creates enormous problems in investigating or exploring what the nature of fear is, is itself. It gets in the way. If that's who you are, what does it say about you? Well, it says, well, I'm a bad person, or I'm a weak person, or I'm a flawed person. And then there's no open-hearted exploration of that energy. The relationship uh, is very, relationship to fear is very conditioned by our culture and our background. Mostly what we learn is that we feel frightened when we're in relationship with others. That's something that's uh, flawed, limited. Instead of it's just an energy that arises under certain conditions, we need a lot of wisdom in relationship to it. You know, obviously when we get caught by fear, it's a burden and a limitation. But if we identify with it, we just reinforce it. We keep getting caught by it. If we bring loving kindness or attention, mindfulness, non-judgmental attention, we can actually begin to let it go because we see the true nature of it. We go deeper beyond the identification process. And then fear becomes so much more workable. And that's true for difficult states of mind, emotions, reactions. If we can see their changing nature, if we don't identify, jump on them and take them as who we are, whether the, they're blissful states or unpleasant states, if we can just experience them and be with them and hold them and observe them, we will see that they will arise and pass away. They may arise again, but then they'll express themselves in a certain way and they'll disappear. That's their nature. No matter what our opinions, views, our identification process consists of, that's the nature of fear. Can't, that's, that's what fear is. Fear is just an energy, rising and passing away. But we identify with it, and it causes all sorts of havoc. Finally, consciousness, uh, the knowing faculty of mind. Uh, and <clears throat> I'm glad I only saved one minute for this one. Uh, so pretty. And where we can see this in very practical terms uh, is the identification with the observer or the watcher, or self-consciousness. I am watching my breath. I am watching my foot touch the ground. Or I am watching uh, the touch points. Or I am watching myself be impatient in line. Or I am watching you know, myself enjoy this moment. And, and, and so there's an observing, there's an awareness of the experience that you're eating and you're experiencing something ple pleasant. But at the same time, there is a, back there, there is this um, identification, there's this voice that says, I am the observer. And that's a hard one to see into its nature, to begin to see its transparent nature. It's so rooted in such a deep conviction that we are the observer. It's very difficult to believe that there's just observing happening. Very difficult. There is just observing happening, but there's also a grasping or identifying with that observing process. And so there's a thought often associated with that observing process. And that thought says, I am observing. And sometimes it's helpful, not always, but once in a while, just to turn one's attention, one is observing and one's aware of that self-consciousness, just to take a look at the I am. You know, look at that thought, I am observing. And we'll see, perhaps, if the mind is quiet, that it's simply a thought 
And the nature of that thought is very transient and slippery. And we can see the conditional nature of observing. We can often, we, what we often find is that that observer, that commentator, the one that's sitting back observing and commenting, it's, that energy is also very deeply conditioned. And it's deeply conditioned by our past. And the observing itself is conditioned by past education, culture, all of past experiences. So oftentimes we might be observing something, but the observer is sitting back, making the judgments, interpreting, commenting. So finally, we don't have to convince ourselves of any of this. We don't have to buy into it to be a Buddhist. We certainly don't have to buy into it to be a meditator. But it is an interesting perspective or um, some uh, teaching that can encourage a deeper level of investigation. And what we want to do you know, at this phase of the retreat is certainly to begin to notice the changing nature of the experiences that we're encountering. And to begin to pay attention and notice, oh yeah, that experience is gone. To acknowledge when one experience arises and it's gone, oh yeah, you know, I was feeling really restless a few minutes ago and now I'm not. I was feeling really peaceful half an hour ago, but now I'm not. And don't take it as a sign that there's something wrong. <laughs> it's not, it's actually an insight to see that. We're actually seeing things in their actuality that were this continuous process of change. And so bringing that kind of attention into the here and now. Okay, let's uh, just sit for a moment. May all beings have ease of mind. May all beings live in safety. And may all beings be free from all forms of suffering. 